Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, we'll be talking to April Eisman about her new book, Bernard Heisig and the Fight for Modern Art in East Germany, which came out from Camden House late last year. Dr. Eisman is Associate Professor of Contemporary Art History at Iowa State University, where she's been teaching art history since 2007. Her research explores contemporary art and theory with an emphasis on East German art and its reception. She is the recipient of numerous grants and fellowships, including fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Association of University Women, the Berlin Program for Advanced German and and European Studies, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the U.S. Department of Education. She is the co-founder of the Transatlantic Institute for East German Art, and she received her PhD from the University of Pittsburgh. The book she wrote, which we'll be discussing today, focuses on Bernard Heisig, one of East Germany's most successful artists. In the 1980s, Heisig was praised on both sides of the Berlin Wall for his neo-expressionist style and his commitment to German history and art. Yet in the 1960s, he played a key role in debates over the limits of Soviet-style socialist realism, and after unification, Heisek became a focal point in the virulent debate over what role East German art should play in the new Germany. From the outset of the book, April makes it clear that her goal is to situate Heisig's works in their original context, something I think she does really well, in order to reassess what we think we know about socialist art made during the Cold War. Such an investigation allows us to see that socialist realism in East Germany was more than a simple propagandistic style. It was a position that entailed exciting, but also potentially perilous new prospects for artists as they navigated the debates surrounding their responsibilities. The book, which results, captures the complexity of this era and, I think, stands to profoundly affect art historical understandings of this controversial period in art making. The book is fascinating, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. April Eisman, welcome to the show. Great. Well, thanks very much. It's great to be here. Uh, well, I wonder if you might kind of begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. I know I just gave kind of a, a brief feel <laughs> about your, your current academic position and some of your background and then about the book, which we're going to talk about a lot more. But I think our listeners would love to hear sort of, you know, where, where you came from in, in a broader context. Sure. Uh, Well, I mean, I grew up on the East Coast, but I think the story really begins uh, with my master's degree, which I did at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. Uh, My focus was on early 20th century art uh, in Germany, and I in particular focused on the Third Reich and did a thesis on Charlotte Solomon, who's a German Jewish artist who created uh, an amazing artwork uh, called Life or Theater, which was made up of more than 700 small gouache paintings, very expressive 
impressionist in style, uh, simultaneous narrative, and it basically it's autobiographical uh, and includes um, music references uh, and essentially captures her life um, before she was then shipped off to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Um, yeah, so it's an incredible work that has thankfully now much better known. Um, but from there, yeah, I went to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston and worked there in the education department for three years and had the fortune to have a major exhibition of Charlotta Solomon's work uh, at that time that I was able to work on. And that was just coincidence. I had nothing to oh, do with wow. that. But uh, yeah, it was great to be able to spend a few months uh, looking closely at her work. And I was able to write the brochure for that. So it was really uh, an exciting time. And when I was there, uh, I also spent my accumulated uh, vacation time uh, doing an internship in Berlin at the Neue Nationalgalerie on a Kirchner exhibition. And that's how I was first uh, exposed to East German art, if you will. There was a curator, Roland Merz, who was uh, an important East German art historian uh, in Berlin. And he would take me all over. I think he was amused that he had uh, a young American there. Uh, and so he'd bring me on all sorts of adventures throughout the city. And one of those was on, I remember, a very cold February morning. Uh, it was the basement of the Academy of Arts in what had been East Berlin. And there were people on stairs or, you know, on scaffolding. And they were paying a lot of attention to the murals on the walls. Um, they were conserving them. I think they were actually removing them from the walls because that building was under construction or they were about to renovate the entire building and in that moment I suddenly realized I didn't know a single name of an East German artist um, and what I saw in front of me wasn't what I would have expected from East German art if I'd ever thought about it and to be honest I don't know if I'd ever thought about East German art before that point because the the understanding in English language is so strong that they didn't have art that I don't think yes. we even think about it mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, these were murals that were done in the 50s by artists like Harold Metzges and Aaron Schroeder, and they were clearly indebted uh, to Max Beckmann and other important uh, modernist artists, especially um, from Germany and from France. Uh, so, yeah, that basically was the catalyst for then looking more into East German art, realizing there wasn't much written. And so then I went and pursued my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh, um, where I worked with Barbara McCloskey. Um, she had recently published at that point a book called George Gross and the Communist Party. So I wanted, uh, it was a great book and I wanted to work with her. And so she was very influential on uh, my formation as a scholar. Uh, her and Steve Brockman, who teaches at nearby Carnegie Mellon, uh, He's a specialist in East German film and literature. So the two of them are really uh, my role models and have defined who I am as a scholar today. Uh, and yeah, as you said, since 2007, I've been at Iowa State University. Wow. Well, that uh, thank you for you know sort of sharing the the story of how you came to the topic. I think uh, the story of how all of us academics came to to focus on, especially art historians, what what we do in terms of time period and and geographical location is they're always dicey stories. I don't know. Right. They're, they're always hateful in terms of oh, I saw this thing and uh, there was this person you know that I decided I wanted to study with because they wrote a book. So. 
that that story made a lot of sense to me in terms of how you came to it. Um, so I guess the the next logical question is, how did you come to write on Heisek? How did you come to write this book about his fight for modern art in East Germany? I can I can see the the seeds of it maybe in what you just described, but I'd love to hear more deeply how how this actual book came about. Yeah, well, actually, I initially wanted to do a book on uh, East German female artists uh, and do a comparative with West German artists, um, but realized there's so little information in English about East German art in general that I needed to start from the beginning and I needed to start with one of the biggest names. And that would have been, you know, Werner Tübke, Wolfgang Matoy, Bernard Heisig, or Willi Sitter. And I chose Heisig because I think, you know, he's the embodiment of what we as Americans expect from German art. And so the fact that we don't know anything about him says a lot about how ideology functions. Um, He's an expressionist painter. Uh, He's very indebted to the German tradition. You can see his looking to Corinth and Beckmann and Dix in his works. He engages with war and the Nazi past, and he's highly intellectual. So he's really kind of the quintessential German artist, and yet he's virtually unknown in English. And so um, that was the beginning of my focus on him and his art. And yeah, I kind of went in with a blank page and wanting to know as much as I could. And uh, that actually led me to the the chapter on the murals in the book, mm. um, because... Third chapter? Yeah, the third chapter, maybe I'm skipping ahead <laughs> too much, um, okay. but, you know, I went in and I didn't have um, expectations of what I would find. I just wanted to know more about him, his process, how his work developed over time, and more about the East German system. So when I would look at catalogs, um, Germany, East Germany had a major national exhibition every four to five years in Dresden, and altogether there were 10 of them beginning in 1946 and ending in 87, 88. And those offered this fantastic overview of how East German art developed over time. And while flipping through one of them, uh, I didn't look at just the paintings section as one might expect when you're focusing on an artist who does paintings I looked at everything and I saw oh my gosh he did murals and no one really had talked about the murals certainly in western scholarship Uh, and so that was the beginning of that but maybe we can get to that later Um, but that was one of the, the major finds was that he did all of these murals and those murals really they're important but they get written out or they don't even people don't even know they existed or if they do they get they dismissed them as he was just doing that to get by in a socialist system because it couldn't possibly be that he was interested in them, that he was learning from them, that he wanted to do them. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely want to talk more about those murals. And, and maybe that leads me to to make a, a kind of general point or ask you to speak broadly, if you can, about how Heisek's works look. Because when I picked up this book, I, you know, I'll totally admit that he's not someone I was familiar with, even though I work on socialist realism in the Soviet context. I, you know, this, this just, like you said, East German art is unfortunately, even for those of us who specialize in that part of the world, not, not something that is talked about enough. And I was floored by these paintings. I mean, this this is something that I, you know listeners should Google immediately. And and though it's disappointing, what comes up is is not nearly the amount as would if you're looking at Otto Dieks or someone you know the more well known name like like Kirchner that you that you said before. So, can you talk about how these look? For I mean, that's such a difficult task, but. Um, 
entice our listeners to, to look up Heisig's paintings? Yeah, I mean, his early work, which is interesting, does kind of fit the socialist realist model, if you will. Um, but around 1964-65, that begins to change. And he started developing the style for which he's known today, which is uh, very expressionist, right? You very much see the influence of the, the brushwork of Lobus Corinth, for example, um, as well as the structure of uh, Max Beckmann in his work. He often deals um, with history or they're called in Germany, East Germany, complex builder or, you know, complex paintings because they're not just about history. They're also about the present and critiques about the present. Um, And these paintings often are very, they work allegorically and they often have a lot of simultaneous narrative going on so that you have multiple moments and events in the same image uh, that you then have to unpack. And that's very much a characteristic of the Leipzig school of, of artists. Um, in East Germany, you didn't really have movements like you do in the West. Rather, you had kind of more regional styles and that develops because you had four main art schools there um, located in Berlin, Dresden, Halle, and Leipzig. And each of those schools had its own traditions and really built on those traditions. And in Leipzig, they weren't even actually supposed to be doing painting. They were supposed to be doing graphic arts and book illustration because uh, Leipzig was known for its publishing um, houses. And uh, so when they did start painting, they developed this complaint kind of new and unique style, which was very literate um, and, and very allegorical. I don't know. I think I went more into content, perhaps. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. I just, I, it's, you know, it's one of the most difficult tasks, I think, of, of you know, radio or podcasts from our perspective as art historians, because describing the way that the things that we're talking about look, if we're, if we're talking about an artist that is a bit lesser known or off the beaten path, I think one of the strengths of this book is both that it's beautifully illustrated. I mean, it does have color images that, that really show his use of color, his use of brushwork as much as that's possible in reproduction. But you do a really great job of unpacking very clearly what is in some of these paintings that that, it, that is difficult to read otherwise. Like you said, sometimes there's simultaneous narrative or there are kind of mythological aspects or um, there are historical aspects, you know, paintings of, of Lenin where you need to know who that is in order to understand it or the Paris communards. I mean, um, but you, you really do take us through kind of step-by-step step throughout the book what we're looking at in a way that uh, is really beautiful to, to see on the page. Great. Well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, there, I am so thrilled with Camden House and what, how they did the images. I think they did a wonderful job. Uh, and this is their first major book engaging with images at this level, and they really knocked it out of the park. Oh my um, and gosh, so, wow. <laughs> you know, kudos to them and especially to my editor, Jim Walker, for, for really, I'm very happy with how the book looks. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, never, I never would have known. I mean, even looking at the cover, I think, you know, it's, it's designed in such a way that it sets up exactly what it is that you're talking about, where um, for, for listeners that are looking at this or Googling it later, on the, the top half of the cover is, is one of these quintessential socialist realist paintings, you know, very gray, very drab, young men behaving as they should, young women, you know, engaged in scholarly endeavors. And then one of these neo-expressionist works that you talk a lot about is on the bottom half, and it's just a a kind of barrage of color and and brushwork. And I mean, it sets up exactly what you're talking about in the book, which is, you know, what, what was modern art to them? And what was the role, since we don't think of modern art being something that they're doing in East Germany in the 1960s and and beyond. 
Yeah, well, it's funny that you say that. I actually did the the major design of that that cover. I mean, they went in and they they figured out the proportions and the the font and all that. But I was adamant I wanted to have those two paintings uh, juxtaposed because I felt that makes the argument right there on the on the cover. Yes. Wow, um, I swear, listeners, we did not talk about this beforehand. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just uh, telling uh, telling fibs or something. I I, um, I guess that just goes to to show that that art historians, you know, we. We can make claims even with the the comparisons of the juxtapositions that we put forward, huh? I had I had no idea. Well, well, good on you. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I know really you too. Know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, those images. I'd like to talk a little bit about them because you know that first one is an image that maybe we in the U.S. might expect for socialist realism or when we hear of East German art, and so it, it's playing with that and then kind of challenging it with the the image below that's far more expressionist and what we might not expect. But it's also working on another level, because most people in Germany, if they're familiar with Heisig's work, they're going to be more familiar with the image on the bottom and not know that he actually started off doing these much more realistic works. And so one of the things I was engaging with in the book was also kind of the German scholarship and, and a correction to that and saying he wasn't always a modern artist, right? He was, he became a modern artist and you can actually date that to between 1963 and 1965. And so that's one of the things I was doing in the book. So it's actually that comparison of two images is, is making two arguments depending on if you're in Germany or if you're in the U.S. Um, and then the other thing is that bottom image. Uh, I love that image so much. Um, that was reproduced in a catalog in 1964, and this is, I think, one of the first times it's been reproduced since then. And it's a key painting because that is one of the absolute first paintings in this new modern style that he developed. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, going back to, to what I said, just as I was reading the book, I was so astounded by these paintings. I really, I wanted to post them on social media. I wanted, you know, I wanted to put them in the lectures and I couldn't believe how hard it was to find good high resolution images. So I think the book also has done a real service to art history in terms of providing images that we can work from now in, in terms of adding artists like this, ideally to the canon. I mean, that that's the goal, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, I'm actually wanted to Google Heising to see what images come up because, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's some really good works, but there's, you know, there's also a lot of stuff that comes up where you wish, oh, I wish that one didn't come up first, you know? <laughs> So maybe we can go back to something you sort of started saying before about, you know, when we can date his transition to this more modern style in and around the mid 1960s, because I think the first chapter of the book, you know, tries to deal with, I think, as you say, the first 30 or 36 years of his life. Um, and I wonder if you might take us kind of briefly through the, you know, that, that story, um, because the, the first chapter really is just packed with this kind of data that we need to understand where you're going after that. Right. Um, well, he was born in Breslau, uh, Germany, which later became Rotslav, Poland, in 1925. Um, and so he was just eight years old when Hitler came to power. Um, and at the time he was 16, he volunteered uh, to be in the military. And so he fought as part of the 12th SS tank division of the Hitler Youth. Um, he didn't even have his parents' permission. So it was kind of a little something he wanted to do and, 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 and kind of cut corners to be able to do so. Um, and he 
he saw action on the Western Front. He was at the Battle of Ardan, the um, Battle of the Bulge uh, in English. And he also then was wounded and returned to Breslau, where he then fought with the Russians um, and then was captured uh, and was able to be released from capture, uh, in part his young age. He also, you know, he'd been wounded and he kind of exaggerated the wounds that they thought he was unfit to uh, do any sort of hard labor. Uh, and so he was able to leave with his mom and ultimately settle down in Leipzig, where he reestablished himself and um, went through kind of that denazification process and realized that all that he had ever known was wrong. Uh, and he basically spent the rest of his life, I think, trying to come to terms with that and to atone for it as, as much as an artist can. And I think that really explains his commitment to socialism, um, his belief that East Germany was the better of the two Germanys. Um, that's not the same as to say that he was a party stooge or that he believed in uh, the state as it unfolded, but he did believe that it was the better Germany, the one to fight for and the one to try to change from within. And ultimately, I think, did play a huge role in changing the art world, in, in changing it from kind of the socialist realism that we as Americans might expect to the socialist modernism that it actually became. Um, and yeah, so he settles in Leipzig. And I think that first chapter is really just trying to set the stage from basically 1945 until 1961, that in East Germany, it was um, art policy wasn't purely repressive. It was much more a series of freezes and thaws. So um, conservative policy, then opening up and being more relaxed, and then, you know, freezing again. And that really depended on often on politics, uh, response to that, and then uh, also location. Uh, who was in power in positions in different places mattered. Um, and so uh, you see that Berlin and Halle were much more modern early on, and they were kind of getting into trouble with the authorities, uh, whereas Leipzig was much more conservative until you get into the 1960s. Um, but what was fascinating for me in looking at these early years was to see that already in the mid-1950s, he was writing articles for the main art journal, um, Bild in the Kunst, in which he was criticizing an overemphasis on handcraft and saying that you need to find the creative moment. Um, and also laying out his beliefs on art, um, the distinction between inhalt and stuff, between basic content and then the meaning behind that content, meaning being the, the inhalt. Um, so, you know, he looked at Goya and Delacroix and Picasso and said they were important not because they were doing history paintings as such, but because they were reinterpreting history as passionate resistance. And I think that's how he sees art is, is that it intervenes in the present moment uh, and that you need to look at uh, art as something that can kind of change the world, if yeah, you will. Yeah, passionate resistance. Wow. I think, I think that paints a, a good picture of who he comes across as, as a young man in, in that first chapter. I think the, the, the only kind of follow-up question I have, and, and maybe I, I hate to take it back there, but you know, I do wonder, has there been much on his time as a soldier in this tank division or as part of the Hitler youth? Does that at all stain his reputation or did you find it problematic to, you know, how do you negotiate that in this first chapter or, or is it something that, you know, you, you just sort of included and then move past because it's not central to, to his character? Well, it certainly played a huge role uh, in the 90s and the, the builder strike, the image battle that took place and the attempt to kind of dismiss all of the artists who were well-known 
from the East and being exhibited in the West in the 80s, how do we get rid of them? We focus on their biography. And so for him, the focus, even though I think the bigger issue for people at the time was his communist background, they would focus on this kind of Nazi background. And, you know, how can you have someone who has served two dictatorships uh, representing uh, Germany today in commissions like for the Reichstag, for example, which he received in 97 and completed in 98. And that was one of these major flare-ups in in the post-90s uh, about East German art that focused on kind of these biggest names, including Heisig. Um, so it was used against him in the 90s. Um, and that was always something extremely interesting, right? Because in East Germany, and when I talked to him, I met with him many times. And when I talked to him, he said, you know, it was so personal in the 90s. It was all about like who he was as a person and not actually the real him, but like this imagined him. Whereas in East Germany, they had really these really, you know, strong battles, but they were about the art. And so I thought that was a really interesting distinction that he made. Um, and then the other thing is that the the scholarship that is on Heisig today tends to emphasize just that connection to the past and to the Second World War. Uh, they tend to try to read everything he did in terms of the war. So, you know, you see the Paris Commune, oh, that's just an allegory for his experiences in the Second World War. And while that may play a role, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, contemporary issues that he was responding to in those works as well. Um, and so there's a real emphasis in post-unification scholarship, or actually even in Western German scholarship in the 1980s, to focus on trauma. And uh, in, that's both because that was of great interest to people uh, to look at the Nazi past and how people are engaging with that. Um, yeah. I think I lost my yeah, train of thought. Sorry about no, that. I think that all makes a lot of sense. I, that was the maybe one of the few times in the book when I kind of went, oh, I want to know more about that. But but my sense was that it must be really worked on. And I think what you just said about the tendency in the 90s, especially to read uh, the experiences of artists like Isaac, who, who served in wars and were wounded in wars and um, in terms of trauma, uh, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense why you sort of want to ask other questions about the material as opposed to, to plotting ground that, that others have tread really thoroughly. Um, right. Yeah. And then the other, the other uh, emphasis, too, is on trauma, right? There's this real – he would repaint paintings. It made it very difficult, actually. Uh, it's so much easier to work on my current work because my artist – that I, the artist that I'm focusing on does one <laughs> or maybe two or three, but Heisig would do multiples of a painting um, and he would often keep repainting the painting. He would, there's, I think I have it in the book, uh, but there are many stories from people about, uh, you know, having to, to watch for the guards while he was in the museum so that he could just change something real quick. Right. Oh and then there's another story where he was forbidden from uh, entering a particular museum because they didn't want him anywhere near his own paintings. And his feeling was like, they're my paintings until I'm dead. So they're not safe until then. <laughs> so, wow. uh, but in any case, this idea of repainting. Oh, so unusual. So, well, yeah, this idea of repainting, though, then has been, um, you know, I think Turner did it as well. But for Heising, they always see this in terms of trauma. And in East Germany, they saw it differently. They saw it as, you know, he's kind of a perfectionist. And, and you know, when talking to him, that's kind of more the sense that I had was that, nothing's you know it's got to be perfect and that's not perfect because i see something different now and so he would change it um but of course that makes it very difficult then to track these early works um and so the need to go through newspapers and magazines and try to find as many early images as possible to kind of trace this um and so that was that was a difficult task um and one that i'm quite proud of in terms of of this book it's um 
focusing on works that that predate the the late seventies. And yeah, and because that seems to be the focus for most people's scholarship, indeed, most people focus on his post late seventies work. And maybe that's where I should say, I kind of recategorize his work into three major um, kind of phases uh, up to 1989. And it's different than others um, have categorized his work. And basically I see the phase up until about 1963 as his realist phase when he's committed to socialism, but his works kind of fit that socialist realist model. And then he changes to a modernist style uh, between 63 and 65. So then he has still the commitment to socialism, but a modernist style. And then beginning, I think around 77, uh, he just kind of leaves the commitment to socialism uh, and focuses more on kind of a, a unified German uh, approach. And that's when he starts doing a lot more of these paintings that deal directly with the Second World War uh, and a lot of the paintings that people are familiar with today. Um, so when you see all this scholarship emphasizing his war images, uh, that's also encouraged by the fact that those were the types of works he started doing a lot more of at that time. And there's a lot of different reasons why, um, you know, being able to sell works in the West uh, brought money into East Germany. Uh, it also East Germany needed money, so they liked that. Uh, so that gave him more flexibility to open uh, a free experimental space within Leipzig. So it gave him more power to do that. Um, but it it also, I think, fit with his idea of a united Germany. So rather than a united Germany under socialism, maybe it's now a united Germany in the mind, a, a kultur nation, um, a cultural nation, kulturnation. Um which is a, a concept um, that kind of predates this, but that I think he started believing in uh, at that point in time. And so his artwork changes uh, in that final phase, 77 to 89. And those are the best known works um, and the works that survive to today because they would be bought and put into people's collections. And he didn't have a chance to alter them exactly. because of that. <laughs> so. Well, I think that recontextualization or reperiodization is uh, in, in one of the strengths of the book. I mean, it's always exciting, I think, to, to hear a scholar doing that and justifying why they're making phases or recalibrating things. Um, I, I imagine a lot of readers like me won't, you know, won't know what it is that you're resisting. But I thought that the way that you categorize those phases made a lot of sense, you know, just just logically, but also in terms of the social history that you uncovered at the same time. Um, I have several follow-up questions. One was just um, kind of what was he like? I had this thought as I was reading the book because you make it very clear from the introduction on that that you've interviewed him numerous times. That you know you met him. This is not someone who's just kind of historically on paper or just you know coming through from the documents and from the works themselves, but someone that you interacted with. So what was he like? Um, yeah, so I met him when he was in his late 70s. So who he was in his late 70s is probably not the same as who he was in the 40s. And, I, you know, you always have that, like, if you had a time machine, when would you go? I would go to 1964 Leipzig, and I would totally be like, who is, you know, who is Heisig? And what's going on with these murals and this Congress where he's giving a speech, which are all things kind of I talk about in the book. Um, who was he back then? 
time. But when I met him, super nice guy. I just remember the first time kind of shaking his hand in his studio and he just had these massive hands and it was like shaking a baseball glove, right? Um, which made me think immediately of self-portraits he had where I thought he was just kind of exaggerating for um, artistic effect. And I was like, no, that's exactly what his hand was like. And just um, just a very warm and welcoming person. Um, you know, I know people mellow with age. Uh, I think he was very much uh, uh, someone who, who spoke his mind and uh, didn't necessarily stop to think tact um, when he's initially responding to things. But the people who knew him knew he had everybody's best interest at heart. And, and that said, he was a very strategic thinker. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is when he gave a self-criticism. He had given a speech that was uh, highly controversial and he got into big trouble for it. He was, you know, defending modern art and, uh, I think in some ways he got into more trouble because Fritz Kramer uh, had really kind of attacked cultural policy in East Germany at the same conference. But Fritz Kramer was an internationally prominent sculptor uh, at the time, and so they couldn't go after him. So I think Heisig kind of picked up some of the flack. But in any case, he had to give a self-criticism. But it's a wonderful example of of strategy at work. And that's, you know, it's amazing to, to read it because he essentially admitted he was wrong but then admitted it in such a way that he basically re-argued the same points again and just basically said that, you know, it was my mistake that I didn't realize that you had already come to this decision, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So. Well, I must admit I, that that may have been my favorite chapter, which I, I hesitate to say only because it's the one where you sort of work on the images the least because you're you're very you're very strategic and focused. We're talking about the second chapter on on the speech and on on the others that were given in that same Congress and sort of uh, I don't know it almost unfolded like a movie like there was a the suspense it was exciting you know it was like oh my god what's going to happen next and um, and then the self criticism. I think at the end was was heartbreaking, but then also weirdly uplifting because of what you just said, where he he was such such a savvy guy that he found a way to to do what he had to do with the self criticism, but also to to kind of reiterate his points, which is just shocking in a way. So, um, do might you for for listeners who don't know anything about the system of, of self criticism, just briefly say what that is or what that meant in the context of the time? Uh, well sometimes to kind of rehabilitate yourself if you had uh, crossed politicians too strongly with something you would you would have to give a self-criticism that would then be given to you know a group of people who would then evaluate whether you were sincere or not and and what to do with you at that point um, that you could you know be punished if you will you could lose your job or you could um, uh, or there could be any level or you could be kind of let go and that's actually a huge kind of revelation in this book that I uncovered was, you know, the scholarship today is constantly saying, and even though I've corrected it, they still continue to believe that Heisig was fired from his job as rector in 1964 because of this speech. And I was in the archives and I found three separate letters, one from him and then others that kind of back it up, that he had actually resigned as rector uh, weeks before the conference took place, and possibly even months before. I don't remember the dates off the top of my head, but certainly before the, the conference took place. So it just so happened that the changeover in power to the next director was a few weeks later, but that actually was not 
uh, the result of his speech here. And people say that he must have gotten a, a strong rebuke, like in his file. But the reality is there's only one reference that I've been able to find to his getting a strong rebuke, and that was in a Stasi file. And Stasi files are notoriously unreliable because they're written by, you know, people informal, uh, they're called informal mitarbeiters. So the, I don't know actually how you would translate that correctly into English, but it's, you know, the, the everyday people who then get enlisted to give reports on others. And so it only appears in one of those. And if you read a lot of the Stasi file, uh, reports, you can see that, you know, sometimes there's, there's different motivations. Somebody can be kind of protecting someone else. Someone could be totally jealous and be using that opportunity to try to take someone else down. Um, and if he had actually gotten a strong rebuke, it most likely would have been in his personal file at the, at the, uh, art Academy and it wasn't. So, um, and I think that is ultimately, yeah, just being used as another example to try to, in this case, uh, redeem him, right? He had all these battles and all these fights, but it's interesting that the only battles that show up in the, the current scholarships are that one um, and then the one about his Paris Commune painting that I talk about, I believe, in Chapter 4. Those are ones that fit the, he's defending modern art, but the ones about the murals, which, you know, are more of a socialist type of art and the ones about uh, the brigade, the workers uh, are also ignored in current scholarship. So I find that fascinating too, what gets picked up in scholarship and what not and how it serves um, expectations or desires for who he should be as an artist. Oh, absolutely. That, I mean, that's strange. It's fascinating. There's a, a separate book, I guess, that could be written on that in terms of how we choose what we do and, and how that reinforces or builds new ideologies. I thank you for explaining the, the, that system. I, you know, I found that to be one of the most chilling aspects of the book. And I think one of the things that, that stuck with me the most, you know, we're both academics, we're both teaching at, at big universities and, you know, this idea that you go through when talking about his role in the Leipzig school, he was a teacher initially. And, you know, the, the, the picture that you paint of, you know, them being in meetings, I think of them like, you know, like scholarship committee meetings that maybe you and I attend today. And, and instead of just going straight to the work, you know, going straight to the prints or drawings or, or paintings and, and assessing the quality of the, the student work, they seem to have had to assess first, you know, the, the loyalty to the, the socialist state and, and, you know, the values of, of political aspects, as opposed to being able to, you know, just, just think about the, the student work. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. And, and you make it very vivid in that sense. Right. Well, great. Um, I actually have a, a couple of responses to that. The first mm -hmm. is that, you know, in East Germany, artists were considered intellectuals. And so they had a, a large responsibility uh, to society, right? So they were given quite a bit of flexibility uh, and a lot of privileges. And by the 80s, they could, you know, regularly travel to the West, although actually already in the 60s, they could um, to a lesser extent. Um, but they were intellectuals and they were seen as helping to forge the new society and the, the socialist person. Um, 
Um, and so I think that plays a role in terms of why then they are being looked at by politicians and why that does play a role. And I think it's very interesting because we can see it negatively, but you can also see it on the other side. I mean, does anybody really care about art today besides, you know, art historians? And <laughs> But I mean, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, you, it's yes, not going to come do. up in the news. But when it's going to come up in the news, it's going to be dismissal of like, oh, why would you major in art history? Which is horrible. But that would never have been the case in East Germany. It was absolutely the opposite, right? Artists and what they did was extremely valued. And, you know, workers were expected to go to art exhibitions and they'd get a day off to go to that national exhibition in Dresden every four to five years. And, you know, so culture really mattered there. And I, th I think that's an important distinction to make. So while on the one side, you can see it as chilling. On the other side, it's because it mattered. And um, on the other side, I wanted to also point out that, you know, he was uh, director of the Leipzig uh, Academy. He also taught there uh, and was very, um, you know, well-liked as a teacher. But people didn't have to, artists didn't have to teach in East Germany. They could survive from making art alone. And so that's, a, I think, an important distinction also to make from artists in the West today, um, or even back then, actually, that often most artists have to have a second job. They need to be a teacher or do something to earn a living, and then they do art on the side. And so the fact that he was teaching and the fact that he became director, those were choices he made because of his commitment to wanting to make things better and wanting to, to in actively engage with the art scene there. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so glad you you made those points, and and you know you're continuing to change my my thinking on this even beyond having read the book. I. Um, I, I just recently finished teaching, you know, this semester, a course on Russian and Soviet art. And, and we made a similar kind of point or discovery about, you know, to us looking from the outside or thinking about it from the position that we have today in terms of democracy and freedom and liberty and, you know, all the values that we hold dear, that we forget that, you know, despite the fact that it looks like they were giving that up, they were giving that up to matter in a way that, as you said, art just does not seem to matter to us or in our culture or in our moment today. And um, it certainly is a great teaching point, I think. And, and it makes me think I might use your book in a way that I hadn't anticipated in terms of provoking this conversation about, okay, you know, how do we negotiate the the that art mattered in a way to them that it doesn't to us, but they had to give up certain things that we think we hold very dear in order for that to be the case. Hmm. And yet, what are they giving up when you when you say that? I don't know, freedom, it seems like, but, but maybe that's an oversimplification or it's too pat or, or something, you know, like they're giving up the, you know, we don't have to make uh, self-denunciations if we overstep the line or give a speech that, you know, that accords too much with our values and they don't accord with whoever's in power. I don't know. Tricky. Um so that kind of brings up the actual title for my book. What I wanted it to be was Field of Friction. And you probably noticed that I mentioned throughout the book, uh, I use that term field of friction, because I think that really encapsulates East Germany. Um, it was a place where, yeah, you could show a work of art and get into trouble for it and have to defend yourself. Um, but Heisig was... He thought that was more. Pre he thought that was preferable to the West, right? He said that you need. It's like trying to light a match. If you put too much pressure on it, it's going to break. 
Um, if you're just waving it around in the air and there's no pressure, it's not going to light up, right? You need that just the right amount of pressure. And so he felt that in the West, there is no pressure, right? Everything's art. Anyone can be an artist. You can't get good art from his perspective. Whereas he felt that East Germany, yeah, sometimes it was too harsh and the match broke. But otherwise, it was really this productive um, environment, um, one that, as you can see, yeah, sometimes they ran into a wall. But other times, there was a lot more debate taking place than I think we give East Germany credit for. Um, and so, you know, I think that comes through hopefully in the, the murals chapter where you can see not only is there this debate that takes place behind the scenes um, when Heisig's and other people's murals are attacked by a, a high-ranking cultural official from the Politburo and all these different organizations, the uh, Artist Union, uh, the Art Museum, and, and the, the different organizations responsible for those murals had to like basically write uh, position papers on how it happened and what they think of the the final results. Um, and then once that took place, then there was a debate that became public, right? It was kind of redone in the the local newspaper so that everybody, all, you know, ev normal people, everyday people could could take part and be educated about art. And I think that's something fascinating that about East Germany is that. You know, this shift that I talk about in terms of, of Heisig playing a major role, and he wasn't the only one, but a major role in this shift from art being didactic to being dialogical, right? And so this kind of Soviet-style socialist realism that the politicians wanted early on was this kind of didactic, hit them over the head about what they should think. And then these artists emerge and continually fight and, you know, continually push the envelope uh, to have a dialogical art, right? To have an art that enters into a conversation. And that's really what those... Uh, kind of speeches were about at the, the Congress that I talk about in chapter two uh, was trying to change art into something that's much more complicated. And then I don't know if um, Bitterfeld Way is a concept that most of the listeners have, have heard about, but that took place in 1959. It was a conference that took place in Bitterfeld. It basically was encouraging artists and writers to go into the factories to learn more about the people they were writing and creating artwork for. And it also encouraged uh, workers to learn how to write and to learn how to create art and to go to art museums. And so um, it was a, a two-way street so that artists were supposed to be engaging with an audience, which Heisig saw ultimately as a positive, right? That it gives you um, artistic purpose uh, if you are engaging with society. Um, but it also works to educate the everyday person about art and through that education process over time you can start having a more complicated art because more and more people can understand and appreciate it and so I think that's also something fascinating about looking at the development of art in East Germany across the four decades. Yeah, uh, sorry, listeners, we lost the connection a little bit there. So I'm just going to restate the kind of tail end of my question. I was asking uh, April to speak a little bit more about the content of chapter five, where she talks about Heisig's portrayals of workers and revolutionaries after these murals and, and after the emergence of what became a very contentious school in Leipzig. Uh, great. Well, so Heisig was known in East Germany as a portraitist, and that's something he's not really known for in scholarship today. Um, and 
he had these iconic images like of the the brigadier, which is this kind of worker who's given the thumbs up sign, right? And it showed up on all sorts of uh, school book covers, on uh, stamps, you name it. It's, it's everybody in East Germany is well familiar with that painting. He also did paintings of Lenin. Um, and these are works that tend to be dismissed in Western scholarship on um, they are often explain them as just things he did to make money to get by because at this point in time, 1968, he had um, resigned basically from the, the Leipzig Academy. Um, both He was no longer rector as of 64, but here he stepped down as well from being a teacher and head of the graphics and painting department. Um, and so he was on his own, but the reality was he had so much he wanted to work with. Um, in part, you know, there were problems uh, at that time. There's a Hochschule reform, which I guess is a, an academy reform amongst the schools that made things more conservative. And he didn't want to deal with that anymore. And he also just wanted to have more time for his artwork. And so he starts creating these portraits. Um, some of them were commissions. And, you know, there's often this assumption that commissions result in bad art. But that, of course, is ridiculous because much of art history was, you know, absolutely made from commissions. So that's this just a bad argument. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so I talk about uh, the Brigadier and actually that that had started as a commission to do a brigade of uh, workers. They were um, basically... Yeah, it's, you know, worker portraits are kind of a hackneyed subject matter in, in East Germany. You get tons and tons of them. And and so I really argue that he rejuvenated that subject matter. He he made it his own and he made it interesting again, uh, which I think is a real talent. Um, and that first painting that he did, um, he had actually gone and visited the workers and you could clearly see that he had a relationship with them. Um, and he kind of paints that. And then that painting, because of its expressionist brushwork and its kind of pastel colors, gets ripped apart in the press, right? That it wasn't heroic enough. It was, you know, the the, the brushwork was, they wanted it to be more finished. Um, and so he basically kind of destroyed the painting. And then FF Dubai was this, uh, was the TV, uh, like basically the TV guide of East Germany. And they had wanted to reproduce the painting. So they asked him for it and what well, was gone. So he just decided to create another painting. And that ultimately is what became Brigadier Zwei, or two, which is the, the painting that's so famous today. And he based it on, uh, he pulled the main figure out of that controversial one. Uh, he then looked in the mirror at himself. He was also thinking of Manfred Krug, who was an important um, actor in East German film uh, and, and created one of the iconic images of, of East German art and an image that then affected other people's images, uh, paintings of workers um, in the future. And then he did uh, a couple of images of Lenin that also kind of, I think, are, are new and fresh and exciting. So, uh, and he pitched them at their audience. So one he did for, I think it was the, uh, the SED, that's the, the government's uh, local uh, headquarters in Leipzig. And it's a painting of Lenin where he's kind of just straight in the middle of the painting. He looks a little bit, as, as Heise explained it, he was trying to do him kind of like a question mark, right? Or not, sorry, not a question mark, an exclamation mark. Um, but it's this amazing painting that unfortunately you just can't get from a reproduction because when you stand in front of it, Lenin ends up being a little bit larger than life and he seems to be looming over you. And yet the perspective is such that it also looks like you're looking up um, – like the perspective changes such that it looks like you're almost having a conversation at moments he's on top and at moments you're on top. Uh, and so it's really a fascinating way that he's created this image. Um, 
and I think is a way of kind of reminding people, those in the politicians, that, you know, things shouldn't become ossified, you know, things should stay flexible and things should be in discussion. Um, and so it's a, an amazing painting. And then the other one is Lenin and um, Doubting Timofey. Uh, Timofey is, is, is Thomas. Uh, he, he just made up the name because he thought that was probably the Russian word for Thomas. Um, and it shows Lenin in the middle of this painting. So the Lenin and this farmer sitting in the middle of a painting, uh, a backdrop of a Russian city behind them. And uh, Lenin kind of looks like a used car salesman, right? He has that kind of like, hey, equality, right? And then you have this uh, farmer sitting next to him, looking at him out of the corner of his eyes, just, um, you know, distrusting him. Uh, and so it's really, it's it's so irreverent in a way, right? And, and it, people really responded to it. And, you know, it's this, the people are bombarded all the time by governmental proclamations and what you should think and how you should think it and all of this, uh, that you might start being wary of that. And yet, on the other hand, in, in this case, you know, doubting Thomas and, and Christ, if you go back to the story, then ultimately the figure in the middle was, was the correct figure. So, um, so in other words, uh, long story short, he was a fantastic portraitist and he was someone who could rejuvenate a subject matter, um, you know, something that had been done hundreds of thousands of times before, make it new and direct it for a specific audience so that it would appeal to them. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm I'm super glad that I asked you about that about that chapter, just because you know remembering those paintings and and your description of them, it I, those were some of my favorites of the entire book. And and you're right, I think irreverent is is exactly the way to describe them. They're unusual. They're they're thick with with meaning and with sort of content, and but they're also formally just as as about as interesting as paintings can get in terms of color and factor. And so uh, if there, you know, we've we've given re listeners a lot of reasons to get the book, but uh, the just seeing the reproductions of of those last works of of Lenin and the revolutionaries and workers, those portraits are are something to behold. Well, April, we have taken up, or I've taken up a lot of your time, but I wanted to make sure that I asked you one more question before you go, and and that's just what are you working on now? Yeah, well, uh, I'm working on a book on Angela Hempel, who is another artist from East Germany, but whereas Heisig was the, the oldest generation or the first generation to be trained in East Germany, she's part of the last generation to be trained in East Germany. She was born near Dresden uh, and went to the Dresden Art Academy from 1977 to 82, um, and then skyrocketed to prominence in the East German art world by the mid-1980s for her neo-expressionist paintings of strong women from the Bible and mythology. Uh, so she has images of Judith and Salome and Medea, and often she's questioning why is it that women are so often presented as monsters in these stories. You know, Medea, for example, killed her children after her husband betrayed her. Um, so that's one aspect of her work, but also what's interesting, and she showed these works on both sides of the wall. She was shown at the Venice Biennale, for example, in 1988, um, but she also did installation and performance art in Dresden. She did them in official venues, and that challenges the tendency in current scholarship to see installation and performance art as something underground or dissident, because um, not only were these official venues, um, but she wasn't a dissident, right? She was an actively engaged and in, in trying to change the GDR from within, um, but, you know, she wasn't against the GDR. She saw it as, I think, the better Germany. Um, 
And she was also a vocal advocate for women's rights, uh, giving speeches that kind of challenged the, uh, the system and those in power. And ultimately, she was one of the founders of the Dresden Secession 89, which is the first women's artistic group in Dresden. It was founded in December 1989. They're about to have their 30th anniversary next week. And uh, they also not, not only have they have a gallery which has had hundreds of artists from around the world, uh, but they've also created installations and permanent sculptures in the city of Dresden itself. Um, so it's exciting to be working on her work, and uh, I'm actually going to be working on an exhibition of her work together with Dr. Gisbert Porstman at the Städtische Gallery uh, that's going to open in 2021, so that should hopefully coincide with uh, the book in English coming out as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about your book on Heisig and, and then also giving us a, a preview about the, the new book and the exhibition. I think I'm certainly looking forward to seeing those paintings. They, they sound pretty astounding and, and different from Heisig, so I'll be interested in, in what they look like. Great. Well, thanks so much, Allison. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show today, April. And I really enjoyed it. I'm sure our listeners did too. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.